It's good to be here again this evening. Thank you, Dave, for uh, prayer for this service this evening. Um, and thank you also for reading my passage for me. So it was helpful. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 11. Um, but yeah, as I stand before you this evening, before a communion service like this, I guess uh, I kind of feel unworthy. Um, communion service is a special time. And in a lot of ways, I almost feel um, maybe more nervous than normal just because I know um, that the time that's to get, that we're going to have together here is a very important time and a time where um, I think the Lord can work in our lives and I hope he can do that this evening. If you like, you can turn to 1 Corinthians 11 and I'm going to open up um, with the verse. And he took bread, gave thanks, break it, gave it unto them saying, this is my body which is given to you, this do in remembrance of me. And my title for my message this evening is, Why a Communion Service? And that come from many years of being here at Weavertown and many years of taking communion services. And I think there's probably, there's, there's a lot of people here have been through a lot more, a lot more communion services than I have. Um, some of you have been through a few less than I have. Um, but I, I'll say this, through those communion services, um, the time I spent here, I was just going back and thinking, why do we do this year after year after year, twice a year? Um, what is the significance of communion? And I want to take a look at that. Uh, it was interesting for me to study and to, to re, uh, look into God's Word and to see why we really do this. What's this service for this evening? What's the importance of it? Um, is there meaning behind it? I think most of us know there is. Um, some of us may wonder what that meaning is, and I'd like to dive into that. Why do we take time for a communion service? Why throughout the last 2,000 years since Jesus' death on the cross have Christians throughout the world been partaking in communion service? Communion has always been a big deal to Christians. Um, and we get to 1 Corinthians 11, we see that. And all Christians throughout the world still participate in communion service. Some every day, um, or some every Sunday. And some like us every twice a year, some once a month, um, and in our case, we do twice a year. I want to look back at the history of communion service, um, and I, as you most, most of you know, enjoy history, and I was just um, digging into the whole communion experience and throughout history and what all went on, and, and I want to just take a look at um, maybe what we stand for as a church when it comes to um, communion. History is full of communion services, like I said, for 2,000 years has taken place. We all know the story in the gospel of the first communion service when Jesus and his disciples in the upper room, um, and after he gave the bread and the cup, he said, do this in remembrance of me. And we'll look at that a little bit here in a bit. Then right after Pentecost, we read of numerous times where the church has taken part in communion, Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And then in 1 Corinthians 11, we come to... Um, a time when communion was a major source of controversy. And we'll find out throughout history that communion is often a source of controversy in the church. 1 Corinthians 11, um, the first part of the chapter or the first part of the section on communion, we see the big controversy at Corinth um, with communion. And Paul there is correcting and instructing them about the communion, telling the church of Corinth what to do. 
Now, during the Reformation, there's been many controversies between that time, but we'll go, I'm going to move on to the Reformation. During the Reformation, the controversy of communion became a big issue. In fact, that was one of the big reasons for the Reformation. Um, the Catholics believed in transubstantiation, and they believed that the bread and the juice literally becomes the literal body and blood of Christ. In fact, if the wafer falls on the floor, you actually drop the body of Christ. And it's all very sacred because you are, it is the real blood and body of Christ. It's called transubstantiation. Martin Luther went on to say that that can't be quite right, and, but he was held on to a lot of what the Catholics said. And he said he saw that communion as a sacrament, but he said the wine and the bread are not the real body and blood of Christ, but Christ literally is present in communion. He called this the real presence of Christ. So um, the Lutherans would believe that when they're taking communion, Christ is there in literal presence. Not spiritual, but in literal presence. Then John Calvin said that can't quite be right. And he went to say that Christ descended spiritually into his presence at communion. And communion is an act of grace. And you say, well, that sounds like what we believe. Not quite, because John Calvin would say that a communion experience is a, a sacrament or it's a ritual where God comes down in an act of grace. Well, we say every worship service, we believe that God's here, right? So it's no different between communion and other worship services. Communion is a sacred time, but we know that Christ is here, was here this morning, so we don't break it down and say something special or different happens where Christ comes down here in a different way than he did before. And that was a big source of contention for uh, Zwinley. And Zwinley said, which he, like the Anabaptists, believed a lot like we do today, that communion is not an act of grace. It is a, what we look at as an ordinance, where it's a special time, where we reenact. Um, well, let me read it. Zwinley, like the Anabaptists, looks at communion as an ordinance. And this is where the Anabaptist forefathers agreed with Zwinley and disagreed, disagreed with the Lutheran church. And it's actually when, Martin, um, when Zwindley and John Cal or Conrad Grable and Felix Mons agreed that we need to be different than the Lutherans in this. Later on, we find out Felix Mons and um, Conrad Grable broke from Zwindley on a couple other things. As Anabaptists, we see communion as an ordinance, not a sacrament. I know I'm getting um, maybe a little deeper in words, but I want to just... I want us to understand this, and then we'll get into why I want us to understand. Ordinances are symbolic reenactments of the gospel message that Christ lived, died, raised from the dead, ascended to heaven, and will someday return, rather than a requirement for salvation. And you say, what do you mean by that? Well, the Catholics believe you need to take, um, you need to take, communion to be saved. In fact, if you go in history, there's a lot of interesting stories in history where the Catholics would tell a whole city or group that if you don't do what we say, we won't give you communion. And there's a name for it, and I forget what the name is, actually vocabulary word when we were studying when I was in um, world history, um, that they would put it upon a whole church or a whole country or a whole, a whole city or a whole country and say, we won't give you communion. And that basically meant they would go to hell. 
So they use that as a control method. Um, as, Christ, as Anabaptist Christians, we don't believe that it is a source of salvation for us. It's an ordinance. It's a visual aid to help us better understand and appreciate what Jesus Christ accomplished for us in his redemptive work. And like it says in Titus 3, 4, and 7, 4 to 7, But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward men appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. So why am I telling you this? Why do I bring history in our communion service? Because I believe like the Anabaptist communion should be a very practical, personal time. And I hope this evening we can make communion that. Very practical and very personal. Not something mystical and hard to understand and to relate to. It is a literal, practical visual we have to twice a year remember Christ dying on the cross. And I think this is where sometimes I missed it. Communion should be very personal. We get this opportunity to worship like this in a communion service twice a year. And it should be personal. It should be something that means something to us. And we're going to do these visuals of taking the, um, taking the juice and taking the bread to help us remember what Christ did for us on the cross. Communion needs to be a personal experience for us. We should personally become, because of our communion experience tonight, leave this service with a greater love for him. I'll say that again. It needs to be personal. And if we leave the communion experience tonight without a greater love for him, we missed it. Um, we need to make it personal in our lives. Communion should also be a corporate worship experience that becomes very personal as a group. And it should be something that as a group we feel closer to each other after we're finished in a communion. It's a corporate. Somebody, I, I read a quote, communion should be the greatest form of corporate worship we can do. I hope we can experience that this evening. Where as a group, we corporately worship in this community. Communion experience is a worship experience. And it should be. And it should be something that we do as a group. Communion also is a time where we look back. is a personal time when we look at our lives in Christ in the present. Christ is alive and personal presently and is making a difference in our life today. Communion isn't just something where we look back at, but is also something that we presently look at and, and we see how Christ can make a difference in our life. And our time of communion should also remind us that Christ was not literally here today, spiritually here. And what does that mean? Christ isn't literally here, but it should give us a hope that someday... We're going to have that communion experience with him, and he will be literally there, and we will be with him. So it's the hope um, in Christ not being literally here. He's spiritually here. He's in our um, hearts like Nate preached about this morning in the Holy Spirit. Um, but someday, we'll actually have that communion experience, a literal experience with him. So as we take part in communion service, we look back. And reminder of what Christ did on the cross for us. A reminder of Christ's past work. We also very practically experience what Christ as a risen Lord is doing for us today. Our present work in our lives. And we can be reminded and long for the day in the future as we take part in communion. We are anticipating his return. Communion should do all three of these things. Take us back. Presently do something in our lives. And also give us that hope for the future. And that's what I want to talk about. Those three things this evening. Um, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Christ's past, his present, and his future are all, should all be a part of this communion experience. So let's start with the past, remembering. Um, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 11, 
And we're going to go right into um, that passage here. We find the Corinthian church in a big controversy at their communion experience. Kind of a sad story here. Um, up until this time, I think up until the 300, 300 AD, the Christians would always eat. Uh, wait a minute. They would always take communion and then eat. Just like we have a potluck supper or what do we call it. Um, we have supper after, um, meals after, a lot of banquets. We, have, we do things with food involved. And that kind of started with that communion experience. Um, the early church actually was kind of the idea behind, or it was the first group of people that would have food um, involved in a lot of their activities. Now we see what happens in Corinthian church. It's pretty bad. Um, you had the wealthy bring, people bringing in their food and bringing in their shrimp and lobster and whatever else and eating it. And there were some there that didn't have food to eat and they were not getting any food to eat. It became a pretty s sad place. A lot of lack of love. And Paul rebuked them severely for their experience here. That experience continued to, I think, 330 or sometime in the 3rd century where they finally opstelled um, or they finally stopped the eating and then having communion after, or the communion service and then eating afterwards because of it just brought all kinds of problems. And, and uh, church itself basically said that we will not do that in communion services. And today we don't have supper after communion or before. Not sure which one. But then in verse 23, Paul is given by Jesus Christ a direct revelation. And here's an interesting thing. Paul, I think, was given the direct revelation. Paul twice was given a revelation, maybe more than that. But here in the second revelation Paul gets and it gives today, you see Paul is given the revelation on how to hold communion. And I think, I don't know if it meant, we know Paul wasn't there in the upper room when the first communion um, took place. But it says he was given a direct revelation. I don't know if Jesus Christ actually came down or told him or gave him the revelation on how to do communion, what communion is about. That's what he says there in verse 23. Let me just read that. Um, For I received from the Lord what I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. In verse 24, he goes about saying what we are to do at communion and why we should do this at communion. First of all, and Dave mentioned already, what should we do at communion? What's it say in verse 24? Very clear. I think it's a big, big part of our communion experience. Somebody. Thanks. Give thanks. You need to be thankful. If you came to church tonight with an ungrateful spirit, maybe you should walk out the door without the communion experience because please... This experience is very important to be thankful and grateful. If we come with an ungrateful spirit, we are in a bad position to take communion. It is a time of thanksgiving. Um, the Catholics and I think the Lutherans and quite a few, they call, talk about the Eucharist. The Eucharist means thanksgiving. Taking, a, um, taking the bread and, and, and the communion experience is, I am um, thankful is what it means. So, so I think a very, very important part of our communion experience is thanksgiving. I'm not going to take the time to tell of all the suffering and death of Christ, but what are we supposed to be thankful for? What Christ did for us. And I know I've been in many communion experiences and, and heard the story of the suffering and the death of Christ, and I appreciated that. And I feel like I'm going to miss that a little bit because I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about the suffering and death of Christ. But that's what we have to be thankful for. God did so much for us. Jesus did so much for us when he came. Um, 
Second thing Paul instructs us in and what we, see, what we still do and what we've been doing for 2,000 years is the breaking of the bread and the communion, right? Like it takes place. How did this experience, is there, has there ever been another experience that is, keeps being passed on for 2,000 years? Isn't that amazing? We're doing exactly what the early church did 2,000 years later um, and taking part the way the early church did it. And for 2,000 years, churches throughout the world and still do exactly what Jesus told them to do. And Paul is reminding us again what Jesus did at the Last Supper. And that we are to do this again and again and again and again till he comes back. And I honestly believe communion will keep taking place throughout the world and churches throughout the world until Jesus comes back again. And why do we do it? It's very clear. What are the words why we do it here? Somebody? Remember, yes, we do it in remembrance. We're looking back and worshiping and giving thanks for what Jesus did for us. We're remembering. There are many verses in the Bible that talk about remembering. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Remember the wonders he has done for you. David reminds the children of Israel here when he brought the ark. of God. Solomon said, remember your creator in the days of the youth. And one of my favorite is Mary Magdalene. And we know the story of Mary Magdalene. That happened just a little before um, this communion experience took place in the first, or the first communion experience. We had Mary Magdalene anointing Jesus' um, feet. And in the end, and Jesus is overwhelmed by it. And he says, and a couple of the, or um, some of the disciples are rebuking her, wasting this money. Why are you doing this? And what does Jesus say? He says, he's doing it for my burial. And he says, Throughout the rest of history, people are going to remember what she did. It's a visual. She made a very clear visual of Jesus' burial, of Jesus' death and burial there. And he said, we're going to remember this. Jesus, so why the literal breaking of the bread and the drinking of the cup and the feet washing? How did this tradition last for 2,000 years? I believe God knew we are people that need visuals. We need to communicate in order to to remember. And because they visually did what we're going to do today, we keep doing it. And we remember it. Um, And Jesus does a lot of things with visuals. He wants us to remember. I was thinking about the thought of remembering. And um, I've been told that I remember. I've been told, I think, already that I remember things that happened before I was born. That's not possible. And basically what it comes down to, you start remembering a lot of things when you look at your old photo albums, right? I don't know if you've been that way, but you see these pictures in the old photo albums and you remember that and you kind of think you were part of that. Um, Or you remember a lot by your parents telling you things. Uh, My wife's parents, my my father-in-law doesn't remember anything until he was eight years old. Um, And I think some of that comes because his, his dad passed away and his mom didn't communicate some of those things. Plus they didn't have pictures to see it. But when you have visuals, you remember so much more. And some of it you know, obviously you don't remember anything before you're born, but some of the things help you remember by the visuals. And I think that's what we do today in helping us to remember. When we take the time to physically do something to help us remember, we have a much greater chance of remembering that. That's exactly what we're doing. We take communion. We take the bread. We break it. We eat it. In communion experience, we use our senses to remember what Christ did for us. It should be something personal to us, and this is something we actually do. Which, by the way, think of all the ordinances. 
had a couple weddings here this year. How would it be if we'd get married and, well, we just go to Justice of Peace? We make a big deal of weddings. Ivan and James, Trina, Dina, made a big deal of your weddings, right? Why? Why the big deal in the weddings? A lot of visuals took place to remember. Next year, after you have a 10-year anniversary, Ivan, and a 20-year anniversary, you're going to remember some of the visuals um, that you wouldn't probably remember if you wouldn't made such a big deal and have such a visual. Baptism the same way. I remember the day I was down here and baptized, and you wonder why the pouring of the water, you wonder why you have to do a big deal in front of church. Well, if it wouldn't have been a big deal, I'd probably forgot about it or wouldn't remember very much about it. Um, all the ordinances are visuals. Um, feet washing. Baptism. Headship covering. What's the... First Corinthians 11, right? Isn't that where we're at? Why do women wear coverings? As visuals to remember. Um, all the ordinances are visuals to help us remember. They're things we literally do. They're symbols helping us remember a spiritual truth that are shown by something we literally do. When we do something, it helps us remember. When we're remember, <clears throat> what are we remembering in verse 25? Let's look at that. Verse 25, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. We're remembering what? Nate talked about that this morning. What a wonderful, wonderful thing. What are we remembering? Somebody. Okay. The blood. What's it say in 25? Because it says exactly what we are remembering. Does it say that? Verse 25. Nate talked about it. Am I missing it there? The new covenant. Does it say that? Verse 25. Am I missing it? Um, We're remembering the new covenant. Now, can you... If you're a Jew, and throughout history, you heard a lot about that new covenant that was about to happen. It was a great thing. And all of a sudden, in the upper room, right before, I think right before um, feet washing or, or the Pass, Passover, uh, right before Je- uh, when Jesus was talking to the, and I don't have the verses in front of me, when he's talking to the disciples, he says, we should have that verse, you're about to experience the new covenant. Um, I don't have that verse in front of me. If you go to Jeremiah 31, um, let's look at the new covenant. We'll just spend a little bit of time here in Jeremiah 31 looking at the new covenant. This was a wonderful thing. This is something that all the Jews were looking for. And to us, it's just, yeah, it's just what Jesus did for us. We knew that since we were a child. Um, But what was the new covenant? Jeremiah 31 Verse 33, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. The new covenant is we get a new heart. Like Nate talked about this morning. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquities, and I will remember their sin no more. Do you understand why the disciples were excited when Jesus said that? Are we as excited as they were about that, or as the Jews were when they read that? They knew what that meant. They knew, and I don't know if they knew completely what it meant, but they knew they were going to have a new heart. And and, um, 
think Nate read that in Ezekiel this morning. They knew about that new heart. They knew that somehow Christ or that lamb was going to wash away their sins. Um, the Old Testament gives it fairly clear in Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah. And they were going to get a new heart. Do we rem- are we remembering that this morning? That we have, a, or this evening, that we have a new covenant with Christ. That we have something worth a lot. Um, something that com- should completely transform our hearts. Communion is a time to remember. Let's go to the second part. Communion is a time to reflect and repent the presence. Okay, so while we're doing communion, let's go, let's continue here in 1 Corinthians 11. Um, we remember that what we did, what he did in the past, and we reflect on what he's doing for me today. This should be a very personal and practical. I remember that Jesus did for me, and this should always lead to me to adoration and thanksgiving. If we are reflecting on what Jesus did on the cross for me, we will always have a heart of thanksgiving. And of course, verse five or twenty-five there in First Corinthians eleven. Um, I'm sorry, verse twenty-four. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, "This is my body, which is in you. Do this in remembrance of me." Our communion experience should always result in a greater heart of gratitude. <clears throat> I hope we all walk out tonight with a greater heart of gratitude. When we take part in the communion experience, it should give us a heart of gratitude for what God did for us. When we reflect on what Christ did for us and understand our unworthiness because of our sins. We will also repent. Look at verse 27. We read this verse many times probably. And some of this is, some of, for some of us this verse has been a hard verse. Wherefore whoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily. Shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. What does this mean? Let me ask you a question. Are any of us going to eat or drink the blood or eat the bread or drink from the cup worthy worthy tonight are any of us worthy to be able to take this probably not this isn't saying we need to be worthy this isn't saying I need to drum up and I need to be do everything right to be able to drink and be able to take part in communion but it is saying what is it saying Let me read that verse again. 27. Wherefore, whoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the the body and blood of the Lord. Unworthily. And what does that mean? If we know none of us are worthy, how can we do this? How can we do this worthily? Well, through the blood of Christ. I think that's one thing. But I think what it's talking about more than anything is If we come to the communion table with blatant sin and refuse to repent, or if we come with arrogance and say, I have no sin, basically our pride becomes our greatest sin. We're unworthy to take of the communion table. Remember, none of us are worthy in ourselves. Like it says in 1 John, what does it say 1 John? If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So we don't come to... The table without sin as perfect people. 
But what does the verse go on to say? What's the next verse there in 1 John? Here's the, here's the good thing. If we confess our sins and we're faithful and just, he is faithful and justice to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The key here is a heart of confession, a heart of repentance. We need to come to the table with a repentant heart, with an understanding that I'm not worthy, but I can take it to Christ and I can have a repentant heart. I think it's so important. Um, as Christians, we need to be repenters. The first Christians were known as repenters. They weren't known as perfect people. They were known as repenters. So we come to the table. We ask God, say, God, I'm not worthy myself. I need you. I need to repent of the many things I've done wrong this week. I know I'm not perfect. I have sin. Like John said, if we say we don't have sin, then we're a liar. But I am repentant. And so we come to, when we come to the table tonight, we need to come as repentant people. With a humble heart. With a, grat- with a spirit of gratitude. We need to come to the beginning of the table with a humble spirit realizing we are sinners. And continue to repent our sins. We can't take our sins lightly. And I think that's what happens so often. Um, we say, well... I just sin and it's okay. No, that's not what God's asking us. He's not saying because we sin, we just take it lightly. We take our sins seriously. We need to become repentant people. We need to be like the early church, become repenters. Why? Because they kept repenting and growing and changing to what God wanted them to become. No, never worthy in themselves to take communion, but always grateful and repenting. Just remember that. We're never worthy in ourselves. We'll never conjure up enough of good works to take communion. But we should be a grateful and a repenting people. Does that make sense? I know that's a hard verse to talk about. Hard to understand. Um, But I think too often we think I have to keep doing more good works to be able to take part of this communion. If we have a repentant heart, God will continue to help us grow and do good works. If we think we don't sin... And we're a liar. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and justice to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I think that's a big part of the communion. The other part of the present experience of communion is what we presently experience as a group. Communion is a corporate worship, which I mentioned just a bit ago. Most of our pleasant experiences are ones we experience as a group. And communion time needs to be a time where we, as a group, love each other and do this together. Again, not because we're perfect. And the more we know each other, the more we spend time with each other, we know we're not that, right? Um, but we're a group who loves each other. Now, that's not what you found in 1 Corinthians 11. Um, 1 Corinthians 11, we see right in the end of the um, passage here, Paul says, Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat and tarry, to eat, tarry one for another. And if any man and if any man hunger, let him eat at home, that he can come not together in condemnation, and the rest will set in order when I come. I think what he's saying here is we need to be a church that loves each other. It's hard to take of the communion service if we don't have a love for each other. There's something about doing this as a group that brings us much joy, that brings much joy in Christ. And when I say as a group, I say as a group that loves each other. He did it with his group, with his disciples. The early church did it as a church. They did it as a group. 
Because as a group, we have to learn to get along. We have to learn to love each other. And I think Paul is making that very clear to the, first, uh, to the Corinthians here in 1 Corinthians 11. I am not the bride of Christ, the church is. And when Paul talked about the church, he almost always was talking about an individual church, not a corporate church. Communion is a personal worship experience that takes place as a body in a group. And when we think about the bread of Christ being a part of the body, um, I think God is just bringing that visual here because we're a part of a bigger group, the body of Christ. Um, A group of people that love each other and look after each other. Communion can be an effective personally unless we are effective relationally with those around us. And I really believe that. We can't have a good communion experience unless we are effective and love people around us and have a relational spirit of love for the people around us. We can't have a good communion experience if we don't love the brothers and sisters we're having communion with. And that's pretty important. Um, Did you ever wonder what Judas' communion experience was like? I don't know for sure if he was there. That's a controversy. But if he was there and obviously didn't have a love for the Lord, I am guessing he probably struggled with the rest of the disciples too. Um, I doubt if his communion experience was a good one. And brothers and sisters, if we don't love each other, it's hard to have a good communion experience. Last of all, the Lord's Supper is anticipating the great banquet or the great last supper with Christ. So we talked about Looking back and remembering the past, we talked about the present, what we need to do in our communion experience here. And then we look at um, the Last Supper and anticipating that great banquet um, with Christ. Communion is a memorial service. We are not celebrating Jesus' birthday, remember, but we're celebrating his death day. Why? Because of what his death means to us in the new covenant. But also because of the anticipation the reward that goes before us when we follow Christ. Because Jesus died and resurrected and has gone on before us, we can look forward to his second coming. Because Jesus died, we can look forward to his second coming um, and spend eternity in heaven with him. So this time is not only a time where we presently are changing, but it's a time of anticipation, looking forward for that big day when Christ comes back. I don't believe Jesus is literally here today in our presence. I think he's spiritually here. Um, And this is also a reminder of what? That someday, might not be here literally today, but someday we're going to have that last supper, married supper of the Lamb, and he will literally be there and we'll be with him. So him not being here is just a reminder that someday, him not being, he's here, but him not being here literally is a reminder that someday we get the chance to be with him literally in heaven. Someday we'll have a much better communion experience that truly will be the Last Supper. But our communion experience today should remind us and get us excited about a much greater communion experience that we're going to have. So if you can't get excited about um, the communion experience today, it's going to, you're going to have, maybe have a harder time getting excited about the one when we get to heaven. Revelation 19, verses 7 to 9. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And he saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called into the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, these are the true sayings of God. Someday, I believe we're going to have a bigger, better communion experience than we have this, morning, uh, this evening. And that's that last supper uh, with Jesus Christ himself. 
Jesus said in Luke 22, he won't take communion with us till he comes back for us. That Luke 22. I will, and he says it this way. For I say unto you, I will not eat, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup and gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of wine until the kingdom of God shall come. And that's when Christ comes back. Um, and that's the last supper of the Lamb. This should get us excited about our future. While we take communion, we should be anticipating the future. Um, we should be excited about the great day that we're going to spend with the great marriage supper of the Lamb. The Lord's Supper is a promise of a future fellowship with all believers. As we anticipate as a church, we're reminded of the day we will do this together in a fellowship with all believers. That's also an exciting thing. Um, I'm not saying this to advocate open communion because I don't believe Jesus had open communion. The Last Supper was with the 12 disciples. But I'm saying this, that someday there will be complete open communion to everybody who's in heaven. Not just our church. It will be everybody. And that's an exciting thought too. Lord's Supper is a reminder to us again that this isn't as good as it gets. We have a good experience tonight. I'm just going to remind you this isn't as good as it gets. Um, it's going to get a lot better when we get to heaven. First John 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all our sins. We will someday get to sit down at the Last Supper and have a much greater communion experience. In conclusion, I hope our communion experience can be very personal for us today as we look backwards and remember the death of Christ um, and what he did for us personally. If Christ died for us, if we're Christians... And we're born again. Christ did something for us personally. And this evening we should be able to remember that. And think about that. Um, of what he did. We should be able to look back. At what he did on the cross. As we presently walk and repent. And continue to confess our sins. And continue to repent. Um, and experience victory in a living in a living Christ. Not because we are worthy. But because we walk in a worthy manner. We can experience a wonderful communion experience today in the present. And as, long, and as we long for the future as a promise of eternal life in the presence of our literal Father and Savior, Jesus Christ, we can long for the day Jesus is going to come back. I just want to read what we sang this morning or this evening. Um, and I think it did a good job of just telling our communion experience or telling what our communion experience is. If you want to open your songbooks to uh, 279, we're not going to sing it. I'm just going to read it. You can read with me and meditate on this um, before we come to prayer. Man of sorrows, what a name. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Maybe I'll wait till you get there and meditate with me as I read this. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Now that was what we're remembering, the past. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement can it be. Hallelujah, what a Savior. That's the present. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished was his cry. Now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah, what a Savior. When he comes, our glorious king, all his ransom home to bring. Then anew this song will sing. 
Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's kneel together for prayer.